0: Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson.
1: I'm Cade Ward.
2: And I'm David Bernheisel.
1: Let's jump into the news. First up, OTP25 was officially released. Looks like it includes a maybe expression, which is similar to the Elixir's with statement. And we were just looking over the original document discussing the proposal. It looks like it took around four years from the initial design to the inclusion in the language. But it's neat to see that. Looks like there's a number of other significant updates. Anything that jumped out to you guys?
0: Well, I saw that there were some new Dialyzer problem detections. And that's always interesting because that means when I run Dialyzer on my old project that I still have around and I had it running clean, it might pick up some new things. So just being aware of that kind of stuff is always cool. And it's all I think it's great that they're continually improving Dialyzer just so it can help us improve our code. Hey, if they're able to improve Dialyzer error messages, I didn't catch if that was it, but...
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wonder if it helps solve some of those false positives too. Uh, I saw in there the JIT for ARM64, which is uh, the, the Apple Silicon chip. So like... OTP 24, you know, had the JIT in there, but it was only for the Intel-based processors. So those that moved over to Apple Silicon didn't get to, didn't really get to appreciate the new JIT in OTP 24. But now they can in OTP 25. And so the speed improvements range from around zero, you know, better to about four times faster, which is nice. Uh, and they gave a couple of examples where the tests came around uh, two times faster faster for those on the Apple Silicon chips. That's a big deal, you know? Yeah, so for local devs on, you know, those new expensive MacBooks with the M1s and all the different little cores that they got in there, you're probably going to want that.
0: Well, yeah, one of the things I noticed was, kind of coming back to Dialyzer, was building the PLT for a first time. Ah, right. Like, it went from 18 seconds down to 9 seconds. Like, that that's a big deal. You notice that. Wait, nine seconds to build the PLT? Is that just for the Elixir one or is that Erlang 2? <laughs> I, I don't know. It was probably just for the Erlang one. <laughs> Another thing that came out in this OTP 25 is the improved error handling for binaries. This is something Jose has talked about several times in, in our last week's episode when we were talking with him. This was addressed as well. That is something we will be seeing in Elixir, where it will help give much clearer error messages whenever you're doing manual concatenation of strings and building binaries where it might have a problem.
1: So there's also a new ETS table option called write concurrency auto. A quote from the uh, change log says, this option forces tables to automatically change the number of locks that are used at runtime depending on how much concurrency is detected. When you enable automatic write concurrency, decentralized counters are also activated for even more scalable ETS tables. Use this option when you know that a lot of processes will be accessing the ETS table on a system with many number of cores. That's interesting.
0: The big thing there is it detects runtime behavior and adjusts the way it locks ETS tables and I think that's just that's cool. You know, like when I deploy that to my server and I may have a really big beefy server with lots of cores, then, hey, I want to make sure this is turned on. And the auto means that when I'm running in other situations, it won't automatically
2: flip into that mode if it doesn't need to. So just pretty cool. There was an also a, an interesting blog post about this. There's a new a fast pseudo-random generator. If you ever work with low-level computer functions, you probably know how difficult it can actually be to get like real random numbers out of the computer. I know my motherboard actually has like a, a dedicated chip to getting like random numbers out of it. And sometimes there's nifty little bugs that come out of how not random sometimes these these, uh, numbers can be. Anyway, so in OTP25, there is a new fast pseudo random generator and they have a whole blog post about how they do this. So it's fascinating to learn to the challenges that are included in there, and and even some of the the workarounds for how folks uh, have been doing it previous to this, uh, so give give that a read if you're interested in that in that kind of stuff. Like maybe the the, the application of this is we're going to have a, a couple of functions in in OCP and and maybe eventually uh, leveraged by Elixir that'll just be faster, which is always good news. A lot of us don't really realize it, but we do actually like depend on random numbers a lot. When you start Phoenix, for example, there's a there's a token that that can be generated and and random numbers are needed for that. It's just in a lot of different places that you might not realize. Fascinating article, and I'm glad to see that in OCP twenty five.
0: Yeah, super common in crypto and just encryption and negotiating keys and all that kind of stuff. Lots more to check out too. So we have a link to the blog post where they hit some of the other highlights. Some of the other things are more specific to Erlang, the language itself. So you can check those out if that is something you're interested in. Next up, kind of following on with OTP, we're talking about Ericsson. So Ericsson is the company that is behind Erlang. So they are hiring for an open source developer to join the Erlang team. We don't usually announce job announcements, but I just thought this was interesting because, hey, you know, if you are interested in actually working on the open source beam. OTP, all that goodness, and you're into Erlang, that might be really cool. But it does look like you need to be in Stockholm, Sweden for that one.
2: You know, we, we often talk about how like some cool companies are hiring or something like that. But it would be unfair of us to also mention that you know, in in, in the market, sometimes bad things happen too. <laughs> so in this case, uh, Klarna uh, is is a company that uh, uh, helps with a lot of like buy now, pay later kind of solutions for checkout processes. And they use uh, Erlang uh, and I think Elixir and some of their products as well. Uh, anyway, they're, they're laying off 10% of their force, which amounts to about 700 folks. Uh, I have no idea the makeup uh, of those folks that were laid off, but pour one out for our brothers and sisters over there. And uh, if maybe they can work for the OCP team, <laughs> maybe maybe somebody out of, out of that group can work over there because I believe they're also on that
1: side of the world. The Partition Manager docs are now up, so you can read them on xdoc. We talked about this feature with Jose last week, and he gave some background on it. It's good to see the docs up, and it helps to better understand it. I was reading through it earlier, and it definitely looks like something exciting and interesting that people can, can use. Have you guys checked it out?
0: I did just kind of skim through it, and especially just reading the overview at the top. So when Jose talked about it, he was just saying how the Partition Manager, it's coming new in Elixir 1.14. So this is like a preview of what we're going to be getting and how he was always taking the same 30 or 40 lines of code that he was often called in to help people solve a bottleneck in their process for spinning off lots of different concurrent tasks and how he's like, okay, it's time to actually make this into a feature of the language. So this is now just... Meaning that, hey, we can go check out the docs, see examples, read about it, and start to get a preview of what it is we're going to be getting in 1.14, which should be coming out pretty soon.
2: Let me read a little bit of the example here to give like, a, an, an application of when this might be helpful. So, for for example, and this is a quote from, from the docs, is, the dynamic supervisor is a single process responsible for starting other processes. And in some applications, that dynamic supervisor may become a bottleneck. So to address that, you can start multiple instances of it through the partition supervisor, which then picks a random instance of that to start the child on so yeah just a way to dole out work a little bit more efficiently a little bit more a little bit smarter uh, i'm loving it also up <laughs> we'll we'll see where this goes uh, i'm not sure if this is gonna land anywhere but it's interesting to see on twitter isaac yanamoto made the java a, a javascript engine the spider monkey one which is an older one he made that callable from zig code i think we talked about that in a, a previous episode he managed to get it to be accessible through Ziggler, which is a library for elixir for for that will compile your zig code from inside of a, of an elixir you know module so in other words you you can from elixir call JavaScript code and get the results out of it. So he has an example where he, you know, just does some simple math, you know, two plus two and then you get four back and then also foo dot, you know, plus bar and then you get foo bar back as, as a string, you know, the way that JavaScript does. I'm three parts scared and two parts interested in uh, what, this might, uh, what this
0: might entail. Well, when you talk about doing basic math like that, it makes me think, well, finally I can do the number one plus the string two and get back 12 as a string.
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's not an elixir function for that. Uh, finally, I can <laughs> I can do weird things. All right. And next up, following up from our
0: episode 98 with Dominic Letts. In that episode, we were talking about Elixir applications that are running on mobile devices and can actually be installed from the iOS App Store. So if you recall, during that episode, Dominic explained that the desktop version could automatically pull down new code on startup of the app without needing to be reinstalled or, or download an update through the App Store. However, to comply with Apple App Store guidelines, Dominic and his team, they disabled that feature for the mobile device on, on iOS devices. Well, Steven wrote in to let us know he works for Ionic, who actually makes the JavaScript based mobile cross platform framework called Ionic. Well, it turns out Steven is actually a listener of the show. And he said, We've actually gotten feedback from Apple and Google on the whole updating the app out of band thing since we provide a service called Live Update that performs a similar function to the Microsoft Code Push. The biggest thing that Apple is concerned with is developers shipping one app for review and then dynamically changing it to another application. So imagine a photo library application that becomes a gambling app right after it goes through review. So as long as the diode app, which is what Dominic was working on, doesn't magically become something else on updating the application, they should be able to do that hot reloading of beam bundles and it would be completely fine. Our customers update their applications without issue from the two platforms. So I thought that was very interesting. And we love hearing feedback from listeners. And we were able to share that with Dominic as well. If you have feedback for us, please get in touch and share. You can check the show notes for multiple ways to reach out to us.
1: Next up, ElixirConf 2022 in Colorado. CFP for speakers is open. So if you're interested in presenting and speaking... On Elixir. Sounds like a, a great conference. It's over out near Mark and myself, I guess. So maybe we should go. What are
2: the dates on that again?
1: It says the proposals are due by July second and the conference is August 30th through September 2nd.
2: All right. Speaking of conferences, there's a couple of other conferences that are coming up. ElixirConf EU, which is before the, the US one that we just mentioned. The one in EU is is in London and it's on June 9th through the tenth. So it's just coming up around the corner.
0: And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today we're being joined by our special guest, Ben Johnson. Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. So Ben, this is going to be a fun one. You know, we are the Thinking Elixir podcast. We are very Elixir focused in pretty much everything we cover. And you are coming from outside of the Elixir community, but we are super happy to have you here because you've been experimenting with something that's caught a lot of attention. It's a project called Lightstream, where you've been really focusing on SQLite as a database that we can use on the server, right? Like In a way that we don't traditionally think about with our back end systems. So I want to learn more about what you're doing there and how that can possibly impact us with our Phoenix applications and all the different ways we might want to talk to a database. But before we jump in there, I'd love to hear more about you, like where do you live and what kind of work are you doing?
3: So I'm out in Colorado, out in uh, kind of the Denver area, if you know the area, and I've been working on kind of databases for maybe the last 10 years. I actually used to be a UI developer before that. I was a database administrator even before that. So I always kind of had an interest in how the underlying data works and kind of, you know, how the bits move around and all the like the the little technical bits and bobs. You know, maybe the last couple of years I've been, you know, really focused on kind of embedded databases and kind of those low level data where you can get really close to your application and you cut down on the latency of fetching data and you can just, it just feels really snappy when you're using a database that close. Uh, so I wrote a database called BoltDB that's uh, that's pretty popular in the Go community. It's used in a couple of different projects like console or etcd. That kind of opened my eyes to, you know, just how fast you can get a lot of these embedded systems to work. You know, once I realized that, you know, there's a whole world of, you know, schema management and all kinds of stuff you get from other SQL databases, I was trying to find kind of the, the nice middle ground of embedded and this whole SQL layer. And that was kind of SQLite. That's kind of the only one that's, you know, super well tested and widely deployed and super fast. So that's kind of how I landed where I am now. I like all kinds of databases, but that kind of has a nice balance of those different pieces. So that's kind of where I've gotten focused more recently.
2: You worked in the, the front end for for a while? and you yeah,
3: I used to actually work in data <laughs> visualization a lot. Wow. And then I was a Rails developer for a while back in the the aughts, I guess. Gosh, okay, and and so then you you developed uh, Bolt, which uh, picked up in the Go community. And Bolt is a key value kind of database, like Redis. Similar. It's it's pretty simple and straightforward. You know, it's uh, a lot of times when you have databases, if you usually have like a database server, say like Postgres or I don't know, there's all kinds, of, you know, MySQL or whatnot, Oracle. there's kind of a logical layer yeah exactly logical layer at the top and that's all the SQL stuff and all the kind of the management stuff users and all that but then at the lower level there's typically it's stored as a key value store and you can usually swap those out for a lot of databases but yeah so that was a long explanation but yes BoltDB is just a key value store and does a lot of the transactional work
2: that's pretty cool anyway yeah your journey sounds like you're a lot of folks say that they're full stack developers but you might actually be a full stack developer.
3: I get all the way down to the Yeah. yeah I, haven't, I haven't like started making my own hardware or anything.
0: So one of the things I think is fascinating about SQLite is just how pervasive it is. Like how you can find it everywhere. It's in your browser, a Rails project starts up with a, a SQLite database as an example. If you're developing an iOS app, you have a SQL database there. So it really is it's like it's like the database that that lives everywhere. Was that part of the reason that you found this attractive to focus on SQLite for these experiments we're going to talk more about?
3: The ubiquity is definitely a big factor. Just being able to, you know, if you deploy, you pretty much know you have SQLite wherever you deploy to, which is pretty awesome. Uh, There's a lot of really cool stuff you can do on the web too. Like um, SQLite will compile down to JS or Wasm and you can actually run it inside of a web page. Not that that's a great idea, but you could do it in theory. (laughs) And there's also platforms where they actually just run WASM out there so that's kind of a cool you know place you could run it to you could never run you know like Postgres for example in a WASM runtime once you kind of simplify down your uh, your tool your database into this thing that's really just like a file that you're interacting with you know you cut out all these other layers it's there's a lot of stuff you can wrap around it and kind of integrate into it and do it in kind of some uh, some cool ways so that's kind of the perk I think
0: well, I know in the Elixir space, it's it's very similar to the, the way you might think about Rails. Like when I talk about Phoenix applications, you have your web application, your web server, and you're connecting up to a single database. That's like the traditional way we talk about it. And I liked your article that you even called it out. Like this is, this is actually a named thing. This is the N-tier architecture. That's where we're coming from when we're coming into this conversation. And you also mentioned like this idea of the embedded space. So like, that's a little adjacent to us because one of the things I thought was most interesting from what you're talking about is talking about using SQLite as the main database on the back end for a, what we consider a traditional web app, where it's like, that's the database that you're talking to. And maybe you can just kind of explain a little bit more about what it is
3: you you mean when you're saying that. The nice thing about SQLite is that, you know, it's really originally it was built, you know, in the year 2000, and they were trying to build it into computers at the time, which had you know, single digit megabytes of RAM and like they're very limited systems and it works on embedded systems, but they're all very limited, you know, from a resource uh, perspective. So, you know, being able to take that database, which runs really light and lean and be able to deploy it anywhere, you know, a lot of times we don't need 64 cores on our machine to run our web app. Hopefully it probably runs pretty well on a pretty light system. So, if we can deploy out on, you know, cheaper hardware or even better if we can deploy it out in multiple regions and have and actually move the data with it out close to the user that's kind of the the end goal is to make it really light and lean and fast and really like a true edge database whereas, you know, instead of having your application on the edge but it still has to communicate to a database that's in Virginia, you know, that's not really edge computing but yeah, we're really just trying to fan it out so it actually gets everywhere
0: so I think we need to bring in and talk about this this lightstream project that you've created. So now we know that it has something to do with SQLite. So what is lightstream?
3: I would say it's an integration but it's kind of a hack really. So SQLite has two modes of operation. This, get, this will still get a little technical. But the idea is when you when you write a transaction to a database, you don't want to just overwrite the old data that you had because uh, for two reasons. First of all, if it, you know, you write halfway through and it stops, then you just corrupt your database. The other reason is that You know, if you have other users using the the database at the same time, they still need to see that old data while they're in a transaction. So you can write it out using what's called a journal mode, which is kind of the old version. And then there's also the wall mode, which is a a write-ahead log. So every time you write a new page in the database, it goes kind of on the end of this file called a wall or write-ahead log. What Lightstream does is basically track that write-ahead log. So every time you write a page, every second Lightstream will actually detect that kind of package it up, and then send it up to S3 as a backup. So it essentially gives you kind of durability with your SQLite database. And the way that it can actually interact and track that without kind of missing any pages is that SQLite has this, there's a system called checkpointing. This is, again, really kind of in the weeds here. Checkpointing inside of SQLite where, you know, once that wall file fills up, it needs to checkpoint and then basically copy all the data back into the original database file and kind of restart itself. But it can't do that as long as it's an open read transaction. So what Lightstream does is it forces kind of a retransaction all the time until it kind of fills up, and then it kind of overtakes that checkpointing process. As a that that makes any sense at all? It's basically a, a kind of a down in the weeds way of tracking it and making sure we don't lose any pages.
2: What good is a read-only database if you can't write right to it? Did I hear that
3: right? No, no, no. Sorry. Okay. So yeah, so, right ahead, so whenever you make changes to the database. Those pages go to the write-ahead log. And the write-ahead log essentially gives you multiple versions of the same page. So you can have a transaction that opens like a read transaction and is reading kind of a snapshot of the database at that point in time. And then another transaction can start doing writes to that same database and that original old transaction will still see the original state when it started that transaction. So it's not read-only. You can you can do a lot of
2: writes. <laughs> it's like I'm surely I'm misunderstanding.
3: Although there there are immutable databases, which are it's another fascinating topic too. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, you can't have the time zone database be that because they keep changing it too often. I know. Yeah. <laughs> really, it's a tricky one. One of the other major features of Lightstream that I don't even think we've touched on yet is the whole replication. So you, you talked about it, how it's tracking the write-ahead log and pushing these the, the data chunks up to S3. So it's durable. So it it's resilient to a failure on a given server. But then it's able to replicate that down to those other instances spread out
3: throughout the network. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And actually, so the original idea behind Lightstream was really you just want to give durability to a single node. You know, a lot of projects I have, side projects, are just like this thing that can run on like a little VPS sitting somewhere. And I really just don't want to lose the data. That's kind of the biggest thing. So it would replicate up to S3. And that worked great. You can actually do S3. You can do Google Cloud Storage. There's Azure. There's uh, you can do SFTP. You can do another file system if you wanted to. There's, there's all kinds of options. But then one thing that people just kept asking for was, hey, I really want to like fan out those transactions onto all my other nodes as well in real time. So we added live replication, and it's actually in the upcoming release, version.4. So the way that one works is that it uses the same principle where it's feeding off of those, the write-ahead log, and then it essentially has those transactions kind of on a a directory, kind of at the side of your database, and other nodes can connect up to that primary and then stream out the changes from there. So they essentially get those transactions within about 10 milliseconds plus whatever latency there is over the network. So it's pretty snappy. So... want to get into more more weeds here so when those transactions actually get pulled down to the replicas those replicas then actually rewrite those pages into the wall file on the sqlite instance on the replica and then do the checkpointing process to move the pages into the replica on that (laughs) that database essentially it gives you the ability to start transactions but not block existing reads or existing transactions and apply those changes instead of basically stopping the world and then reapplying so the difference between this and uh, traditional,
2: as you called it, n-tier, you know, architecture, is that the database is sitting next to the application usually, versus in in my world, Postgres, a, a primary Postgres that's away from the application, from all of the app, you know, instances of the application, and might still have its own replication story, you know, uh, followers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's that's the difference here is that is the location of your database is just closer to the app, but you still have a primary and then followers.
3: Yeah. So in the current system with Lightstream, you have primary and followers. And I think the kind of underappreciated part is when you connect to like a database server, like it seems, you know, it's relatively fast. If you're running the same node as the Postgres server, like, you know, I've done benchmarks before and it's usually about 300 microseconds, you know, just to connect and pull down like a select one query. You know, that's just kind of the, the networking overhead. And then if you actually do it within the same region, you know, that can be up to almost a millisecond just to do that you know, overhead communication going between nodes, going through the network. And then if you're trying to use you know, another system that's maybe in a different region entirely, I tested against like AWS US East 1 to US East 2, and it's like 11 milliseconds just for one query. So you start to get this thing where you really need to like bundle as much data into one query as possible to kind of amortize that overhead. But the nice thing about SQLite is that essentially your data is like it's right next to your application. So, you know, I typically get about 10 to 20 microseconds per query overhead, which is almost nothing. I mean, you kind of eliminate all your N plus one query issues. You can really just kind of decouple all that application code from how you need to structure your queries, which is really nice. You can do a bunch of tiny little queries and it's not much different than just doing one big one.
2: Gosh, that sounds transformative for how people would you know design their apps. Okay, so so I'm starting to understand why fly why fly is interested in this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the vision, the dream, I think as a as a developer is that you you know you can argue, you can just write your code and not have to worry about the network, you know, the, the the network or the the infrastructure so much that stuff is all abstracted away. So thanks Kubernetes for providing
3: me a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Cuz now now that's the application I have to can manage,
3: yeah no i've done yeah i've done kubernetes too it's <laughs> it's good for the you know, the right problems out there but if you don't have that problem it's it's rough
2: but if if i don't have to worry about yeah where where the database is and how to optimize the query and all that kind of stuff and i can just rails generate my way into a, a application that's the dream really yeah and, <laughs> and yeah and still have like a good amount of performance there not have to worry about n plus ones which is like optimization 101 right there right that sounds like a big win like where are the hidden dragons in this what is not so good about this
3: as far as you know the hidden dragons i would say that you know there's certainly more features you can probably get from other databases i mean honestly like postgres does some really cool stuff they have like a genetic query optimizer they have all kinds of cool features and like There's always going to be those use cases where you need those extra features or you need like an elastic search or something if you really need some complicated search parameters. But SQLite, I feel like, fills probably 95 to 99 percent of what application developers usually need in that, you know, it has full text search built into it. It has JSON handling. It has serializable transactions. It has all kinds of like these really nice features that most most people need and those work really well. So I think that the dragons are really around exactly what your use cases are and what your your application really needs. I think that if you wanted to get into like really high performance stuff, you can probably eke out some more performance from Postgres at the cost of that latency. You know, you can do more in parallel, but you might start worrying about like PG bouncer and trying to get connection pools working and all that stuff. But maybe that works for your application, you know? So it's it's a lot of trade offs like that unfortunately at very low levels like i personally defaulted to sqlite and then if i you know hit a point where i need to upgrade or change to a different database then i make that decision then and you know moving databases sucks for sure but it's not the end of the world you know you can move databases if you get to that kind of scale but i wouldn't worry about that from the get go personally so one last
0: thing i wanted to uh, address about the question of on lightstream is just to Make sure I understand this, right? From what I read, it sounds like Lightstream is not in any way a fork of SQLite. It's not like we're taking the SQLite database and forking it to make it now have this extra behavior that Lightstream can actually sit beside a standard SQLite
3: instance. Is that right? That's right. So SQLite is built to be multi-process. So you can actually run multiple. If you have your application split out, I'm trying to think of uh, systems that do this. Like I think Rails might be single-threaded or a Node. So you can actually have multiple instances of those. Applications running against the same SQLite file, and it does it all through file locking and whatnot. So that's all safe. So Lightstream is really just, you know, another application connecting to that database. It just kind of blocks some of the the checkpointing stuff so that it can pick up all the changes and then ship those off. So it kind of works behind the scenes as a separate process right now. So you can actually run if you have like a WordPress site that run that can run on SQLite. You can just put legacy code, drop it in there, and put Lightstream next to it, and it'll back it up magically
0: that's a great little example of how it can just be used as a, a feature just to give you that durability
1: mm-hmm. magic
3: <laughs> <laughs> a lot of magic on i hate magic personally but it, it sometimes does feel magical that it just like sits there and you write to this database and then there's a file that shows up in s3 suddenly and then you restore it to another machine and it just it all comes back correctly
2: I know we, we talked about like connecting and primaries and followers just a bit ago, but I still need to sort this out in my head so I can understand this fully. So because it's file-based, right, and and I know that SQLite is like extraordinary on file-based like performance. Like in some cases, it's actually faster to do a SQLite, you know, database than it is to actually write to the file, you know, some flat file directly. So like it's amazing at that. And and we just talked about how Node and, and Ruby servers, you know, on, on the same deployment, they can have several instances of the app up and connected to the database at the same time. But in a distributed sense, and this is going to be more common for Phoenix and Elixir applications, if I have multiple instances of the application deployed, we already talked about there's one primary and, multi, and potentially multiple followers. How do those other, you know, the non-primary web server instance, how how do the follower you know or the the other instances of the the application connect to that primary database? That that doesn't sound like SQLite to me, right? Because SQLite is it's all this is supposed to be right beside the, the app. You know, how
3: do I connect to that primary? What's the story there? The Lightstream that runs on the primary, you can enable it to open up an HTTP server. Those replicas that are also running Lightstream, they can set their upstream to that primary and they'll receive changes automatically. So when they get those changes, they then apply it to the local copy of SQLite. So that all kind of happens behind the scenes, so your application thinks it's just reading from a file and it is, but there's also another application on the side that's injecting those new transactions in from behind the scenes.
2: Gotcha. Okay,
3: there there's the ma- that's more the magic. Gotcha.
2: <laughs> okay, thank you.
0: So one of the things I want to make sure I've got in my head that's clear, because, you know, I'm coming from this perspective of my Phoenix application. I've got this web server, and I'm accustomed to this idea that because I want to have just no interruption of service as I roll out new code, I will ha- might have multiple instances of my app running. Now, when I have a Postgres database, that's fine because it sets out separate from my application. When I think of it being like right there next to my app, I start to think, how am I deploying this? Is it in a Docker container? So now if I have two instances, I automatically have a leader and follower. Is that right? Or am I thinking about this wrong?
3: No, that's correct. So actually, the original way this was developed was it was meant kind of for people that run on a VPS and they have Lightstream running on the side and they can upload new versions. So if you're coming from Rails, that's like Capistrano, uploads a new version, switches the process, and then you just keep going. So that's the original intent. The movement towards Docker-based deployments has made things more complicated. Obviously, we kind of restart everything inside of an instance. So as it stands right now with Lightstream, it has a limitation in that you'll lose write availability when the primary restarts, Uh, but we are working on kind of a next incarnation that is not fixed leader. So essentially, any of the nodes can be a leader, and there'll be a leader election through there and it'll automatically shift over who's the leader and go into the replicas. And then you can just, you won't have to worry about deploys the same way. It'll just automatically switch over. And before the show you were talking about, and you mentioned the Raft
0: protocol, and I imagine Raft might have some inspiration in there when you talk about leader election and things like
3: that. Yeah, it's a great protocol. I wrote the original Go Raft implementation that I later got into SCD, which is not a good implementation, just so you know, that's why they switched it out (laughs) later on. But I have familiarity with it. It's a really interesting concept. Essentially, you have, you know, Raft for anyone that's probably most people are not familiar with. It's basically a way to do a distributed log. So, or a distributed finite state machine. So every log entry is a way to change a state machine in your application. So you're kind of changing the state. And if all, you know, instances that are following that log change the state in the same way, then you end up with the same final state on all instances, if that makes sense. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're working on around distributing out the transaction log kind of works the same way. We're just applying all these transactions one after another, and they eventually reach the same state on all nodes. You know, hopefully quite fast, but obviously obviously, there's network partitions and other issues. There's some interesting trade-offs though, if you're looking at Raft versus some other things you can do out there. So Raft is very highly durable and very strongly consistent in that you would need a quorum, so you need basically more than half of your nodes in the cluster to receive a write and then confirm it before, you know, you can kind of keep writing. So it kind of poses a problem for write throughput. And, you know, if you're going to distribute an app across, you know, the world and the the latencies between those nodes, that can be difficult. So there's a lot of other gray areas where people, you know, might want to trade off some write durability or, you know, for some better availability. And you know, a lot of those questions, I feel like, I feel like there's kind of a a bit of a chasm between like people that really care about that stuff more academically, and say that you must use strongly consistent systems all the time, versus people in the industry, I would say, that are a bit more lax about it, you know, not every piece of data needs to be strongly consistent, you know, someone likes a page on Facebook, and you lose that right, you know, somewhere, it's probably not the end of the world. If you're losing, you know, order system data, that's probably a bigger deal. So I think there's, there's a bigger conversation in the industry we need to have around like what durability means and when it's important and like how much of it you need i think i kind of feel like this is another tangent i have but you know if you talk about availability like everyone always wants 100 percent availability but it's like we've kind of gotten to the the place in our industry where like you can't get 100 availability availability maybe five nines is you know that's amazing but you know having that crazy availability is just not possible and the same thing for durability you know, if you have like Amazon S3 is like one of the most durable systems and it has 11 nines of durability, like they even they can't reach 100%. So I think that understanding, you know, which pieces of data need to be durable and how durable and what trade-offs you'll make in terms of performance can be kind of an important way to think about it.
2: That's an excellent way to break all that down. So I, w- I want to bring this into, you know, some terms that some Elixir folks might recognize is uh, we've probably heard of CRDT a lot, conflict. Oh, gosh, what is it?
0: Conflict-free replicated data tapes.
2: Yes, thank you. So <laughs> I never remember these things. So we've heard of, of CRDT a lot, and I think uh, Phoenix implements some of that. The strong point there is that it's eventual consistency, keyword on eventual consistency there. That's okay for a lot of ways that we use it, but Raft... And other ones like raft, there you, you said the word already, but I want to point it out is strong consistency, right? It's that's where like what you said, you know, you can't drop an order. You you can't you have to be able to resolve an, an order, right? You can't just drop one where you can, you know, drop a like on Facebook. <laughs> uh like who cares but yeah (laughs) yeah so i want to i want to help redefine that for elixir folks so crdt raft is really eventual consistency versus a leaning towards stronger consistency which obviously makes sense in the in the case of logs and database replication right and following logs and all that kind of stuff obviously you want the stronger consistency there so makes sense
0: so you mentioned s3 as a target where things could be backed up to are there other options like if i didn't want it to be an s3 and i had my own data store
3: is that is that an option yeah you can use i mean there's menu um, anything that's s3 compatible google azure sftp although that's a little bit slow you can actually go to like an M- nfs mount if you have it on your system you can just go to another file surprisingly large number of options that you can kind of go up to the actually interesting thing about s3 and the way this actually works really well for sqlite they want you to get your data in you know, as easily and cheaply as possible. And then they charge you through the nose when you actually download it. And that's kind of how they make their money. But the nice thing about backups is that you pretty much never download your data. You just really are trying to upload it. So like the ingress cost is super cheap on S3. And we actually pay, I think we mostly pay in um, the number of actual calls we make, the API calls, and not the actual data going up. Someone named Michael Lynch, he had a a blog about how he runs his app. And I think he pays like three cents a month for the backups. Like it's absurdly cheap. <laughs> it's like five, ten thousandths of a cent, I think, for like every every request or something. So it's uh it's a nice little hack, like a pricing hack. <laughs> so so I wanna
2: I wanna clarify there for my own sake, really, is that uh it's a backup that's going to S3, right? So the full database is still replicated to all of the instances of where Lightstream is deployed along with the SQLite three database, right? So Queries aren't necessarily going you know just a random normal everyday read query of your database isn't going to go to s three. so that's how you're able to avoid those that cost, right? yep,
3: yeah, yeah. the s three stuff is just for backups and disaster recovery, really. That's the main point of it. And then all the the replicas they avoid s three entirely. so they just pull straight from the primary and then everyone has their own database locally. And since this, we're actually doing physical replication inside of LightStream, so the physical replication is when you actually copy the, the pages themselves, the actual raw bytes. And then logical replication is if you were to replicate all the uh, like the inserts, commands, and updates, and all that stuff. So we're doing physical replication. So actually every single node has a byte-for-byte byte exact copy of the database that's on the primary. And then when you restore from S3, it's all byte-for-byte byte exact let's say that i've had
2: five instances of an app up we've backed it up to s3 lightstream is running and all this and then i've shut down all of my instances so now i have no actual sql you know sqlite running right no lightstream running at that point point. and then they all come back up and, and there is no volume you know so like the, there's no volume persisted it's the only copy now is in s3 am i able to get that app back up and running pretty easily
3: Yeah, so typically we have um, some examples of this with like Docker containers where the the startup script will essentially check and see if there's no database file on disk, then it'll go restore it from S3. Another thing we do with Lightstream is you can have kind of a a retention policy. So essentially you can say how often you want to snapshot your database. So it'll basically send the whole thing up and maybe do that once a day or every hour or every month if you want to. And then from that snapshot, it will track every incremental transaction wall change and then when you want to pull down and do a restore, it pulls down the snapshot and then replays every transaction after that. And the other actually side effect of that is that you can actually say, you know what, I want to actually restore back to this specific point in time. Like I dropped the database at 9.59. I want to go back to 9.58. And you can actually specify that and it'll replay up to that point.
2: And you guys are making this pretty easy.
3: Trying to. I mean. <laughs> I'm suspicious.
2: I'm suspicious. What do you want from me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: Just getting those GitHub
0: stars. (laughs) Social proof. Yeah, that's what that is. Yeah. Elixir is known for its concurrency, right? And you, you talked about like with SQLite, it's essentially my interface to talking to a file. And one of the things I people are often surprised with when they come to Elixir from other languages like Ruby and Node is that they can run a lot more throughput, like do a lot more work with fewer servers. That means I have a lot more active database connections happening. Like I've never used SQLite in this way, like as a, like my primary backend database. Is it comfortable and fine with handling like the, a lot of concurrent requests?
3: Yeah, it's really, I mean, you don't really even have almost a connection really. It's really just a file handle. So whatever your limits are on file handles in your system is probably where you're going to get limited on SQLite. It's highly concurrent from a read or like a read standpoint. So you can have a lot of queries going against the database. It's limited to a single writer and how it works. And that's how, you know, the wall file, the write ahead log is append only. So it just keeps on appending onto the end. So you can only have one appender. So you typically want to keep your writes pretty quick and fast, which is, it's not hard to do in SQLite, but you don't want to like open a transaction, like a write transaction, just like leave it open for seconds or minutes. That'll block everyone else. So just keep it quick and snappy. And that usually does pretty well. And then it does copy on, if so, actually, this is an important thing. By default, you'll be in what's called journal mode, or like a, it's a rollback journal. And that one, you are limited. You can't have readers while you have a writer. And that's, that's kind of what, whenever people say like SQLite doesn't scale, that's really what people typically are talk, talking about. That's kind of the default way it works. You can do something called the wall mode, if you set, it's like a, it's what's called a pragma. So you're kind of setting an internal setting. And you say journal mode equals wall, and it'll flip on this wall mode. And then from then on, it only uses the wall. And that one actually does copy on write. So whenever your writers make a, you know, a new change, it's copying from the old page and making a new page. But the, the old readers or you know, existing readers have that old page and that old snapshot view of the database. So you can actually have like a ton of readers at the same time. And it works great. Do you
0: have any good resources that we could include in the show notes where people could find that configuration
3: of what, what those settings are that they could get that best performance? There's a page on the Lightstream website. Lightstream spelled L-I-T-E, not L-I-H-T. Uh, so lightstream.io/tips is actually what's we have a page on there called Tips and Caveats. So it's kind of the things that's good for you know what you kind of want to configure it with. Some places where you can have issues if you're really write heavy, SQLite might not be the best thing for you. You know, there's a couple other kind of more minor issues, but you know, depending on your application, it could be a, a problem. So just I would check out that page. That usually gives a good overview of when it's a good choice. So you mentioned
0: that Lightstream and SQLite are really good for read-heavy operations and read-heavy websites. And I think most of the websites that we as developers work with, most of them are read-heavy. And I'm not sure even people are are thinking about their sites that way. But what that means is as I'm clicking around my website, I'm browsing and I'm navigating to the area that I want to interact with something. And then I might, you know, click that like or edit something or insert something. But most of my interaction, most of my time spent interacting with the website is doing read operations. So I think it works really well for that. And honestly, I don't know of many people who are actually doing write heavy stuff.
3: I actually worked in a write heavy application before. So Influx data, they have like time series database. Like that's a super write heavy situation. You can write in metrics all the time where you never actually read them. They sit in their system until something breaks and you need to go debug. So I would say that's a good example of write heavy. I wouldn't probably do a time series database in sqlite another thing is i think most of
0: the websites if you look at most of the websites on the internet most of them are low traffic right there's a few small percentage of really high traffic stuff that's your your twitters your facebook's your googles youtube all those kind of things but i think most of the the websites that we are working with are are fairly low traffic and that's where i think this idea comes in where maybe i can get away with a single elixir server with a single SQLite database, and that serves all my customers perfectly fine. Is is that what you're saying we can do?
2: You gotta you gotta convince the psyche of the developer first, yeah. <laughs> rather than the practicality. I don't know about you, Mark, but my my website is is powered by Kubernetes, and it's got like ten instances up there for all ten of my visitors. <laughs> I need I, I need replication, and I need it now.
3: <laughs> the definition of what is high traffic has changed really over time or like what, you know, a server can even handle. You know, you go back 10 or 20 years, like you can handle, you know, at, you know 10 people on your website at a time. And that's, you know, your, your box is going, you know, through the roof, just, you know, heating up. I work in Go a lot and, you know, I have a Go server We're running SQLite and I can do, you know, I can maintain hundreds or even in the low thousands of connections and serving against SQLite data and doing queries and it doesn't really have a problem at all. You know, I've run on like Fly's 256 megabyte instance and gotten quite a bit of throughput just through that. So I agree, like the number of sites that really need, you know, Kubernetes or whatnot, all your different uh, services and whatnot like that, I think are, you know, becoming fewer and fewer, honestly, even though the Kubernetes is getting more popular. I think it's just a bit of a trend more than anything. But I think, you know, there's a trade-off too is between simplicity and some uptime. You know, I think people that try to chase that, Really, really high uptime with things like Kubernetes and all these different services, you know, can sometimes shoot themselves in the foot. And I know I've taken down, you know, websites and whatnot on Kubernetes because it's just too complicated, and only so much YAML can fit in my head. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's kind of a, a discussion we need to kind of have as an industry, you know, try to figure out when we need that for what problems and when we need something simpler. And most websites, I feel like, are read heavy and do well with you know are probably under 100 requests per second generally.
0: So there was some big news with Lightstream. So Lightstream was making some big splashes, lots getting lots of like hacker news interest, right? Which is really cool. Congratulations. You know, it's always gratifying when something you work on and care a lot about and spend a lot of time on starts
3: to get recognized. Yeah, no, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, so Fly acquired the project and they brought me on to work on Lightstream full time. I was kind of working on it on the side, just it was kind of This hobby project I've done for, I don't know, a year, two years, and just moonlighting. I don't know why this is my hobby, but, you know, writing database replication services. (laughs) So they, you know, I could just kept kind of coming up against the same problems that they were kind of experiencing at the same time. So I wanted to build this sort of thing. And they're like, hey, we're trying to do this sort of thing too. And we just kind of kept connecting and crossing roads. So, you know, it just made a lot of sense. You know, the stuff that I wanted to do really enabled a lot of the stuff on their platform. Like they really just want to, make it so that everybody can deploy out their servers and run them on the edge and not worry about their database and, you know, postgres configurations and replication, all kinds of stuff. They just want to make it transparent. So, you know, a lot of that aligns with kind of the SQLite stuff and really low configuration or no configuration stuff that we want to do. And that's kind of what we're building to. So it's been a nice unity, I guess.
0: So you were hired by Fly.io, but you're continuing to work on Lightstream. So now, now it's become more of a full time focus. What are you hoping to do with Lightstream now?
3: Yeah, so we're actually, so we're actually revamping a lot of uh, what Lightstream is. So Lightstream had a lot of good ideas as far as replicating the wall and you know the track that and you know fan that out into replicas. You know some places where it can struggle is if you have a high write throughput, the restores can take a while you have to replay all those write-ahead log files, you know, things around having a leader election and being able to move the leader around when you deploy, things like that. So we are actually in the process of kind of revamping a lot of what Lightstream does and moving it, kind of lower in the file system. So we're kind of rebuilding it as a Fuse file system. So you actually don't even really have to set up another process. It just simply works and you point out a directory and that directory will be kind of automatically replicated to all your other instances at the same time. Uh, without having to worry about the ins and outs of exactly, you know, which one's the primary, where do I handle lead, leader election, all this configuration stuff. It really should just feel like a local file system. So that's kind of one piece that we're working on. You know, beyond that, we're moving it to be able to be compiled into WASM. So if you're on things like Vercel or other or like Dino, things, places like that, that you can also use SQLite on there and distribute those out to the edge and have a way to run those with a simple database. So that's kind of the long term goal. We really just want to make we, make it, we want to make it invisible. Essentially, you shouldn't even know that Lightstream exists or is running. You just think that you have a, a SQLite database that is automatically backed up everywhere and is replicated everywhere. When
0: people first come to Fly, this has been my experience, is most developers are currently not thinking multi-data center. The way they envision their app is single data center. All my servers are like right there together. And so now you're talking about globally distributed. And now you're thinking about some of these things you mentioned, like these ping times between my Virginia East and Australia, Sydney, right? Like it, it becomes significant, like the distance becomes significant. So like the idea of moving my database out and having Lightstream take care of replication, what do you see as a potential when you're talking about working with Fly and moving these servers out to the edge? Like what what do you think can happen there? What, what's your vision?
3: Yeah, you know, it really depends on the use case. I agree that a lot of people that, you know, probably don't need, you know, a server out in Guam or I mean, not, not that we have a server in Guam, but a region. But, you know, I think that even just within a region, you know, a lot of people will, may run in, you know, the United States and they may run in Europe and just having some instances on both of those and be able to make them snappy is a big thing. Also, if you're looking at like GDPR, you know, there's a lot of restrictions around where your data can actually live and encryption and where it can actually sit. So, I think you know there's some important pieces, not even just the latency time, but you know some regulations as well that I think it can be much simpler than trying to to set up all these different uh Postgres replication systems everywhere as well. so yeah, I think it really depends on your application, but it's a great way to start as well, even if you're not worried about running in fifteen regions if you just have one, I think it's great just to be able to have an option to start small and then grow easily over time instead of you know starting big and then. Maybe you actually need that power, but maybe not. So it's, uh, yeah, trying to make it easier for everyone. Well, that's what I love
0: about Fly. It's just the idea that I can start with my website in one location. You know, you never know where interest is going to pick up for your particular niche that you're trying to serve in your business. And you might get a whole cluster of people in Central Europe. And there's just like this cluster over there. It's like, whoa, well, it would really make a lot of sense to put a server over there just to serve them and give them a better experience,
3: but I'm just curious, why does this make sense for Fly.io? Make it easier for everyone uh, to run. I think I think it's kind of a it's partly you know a rising tide lifts all boats mentality. Like they're super supportive of you know all kinds of open source projects out there. I think that's one piece. I think there are services they can add on to help make backup and recovery, super simple, leader election, all that kind of stuff. I think there are you know, probably managed services down the line, but the initial focus is really just kind of making a tool that's useful for everyone. I just find this whole idea fascinating. Just the idea that SQLite can
0: actually play a bigger role as the primary database in our systems. I think that's very challenging to the assumptions that a lot of us have in the web server space and just the, the what we, way we've grown up. It's like, oh, I'm talking to... You know, it used to be the IBM D B2 server or the Oracle. And now it's Postgres and MySQL as, as the the often go-tos in the open source world, like if you're not on Microsoft. Now you're saying, you know, SQLite. Have you heard of SQLite? So, well, yeah, we've all heard of it. I've never thought of doing that. And I think that's really fascinating. I think, for one, helping people come to Phoenix and Elixir, it would be awesome if SQLite was the default database. Because that's just another hurdle that someone has to overcome to set up a, a Postgres database. If they're new to, newer to programming, especially, it's like, oh, I, offer, I have to figure out how to do that. I think that's a, a great place to start. And then now I can just deploy it. I think that's a, a really intriguing story. So have you seen success like this in any other environments, any other communities where it's catching on?
3: Yeah, I mean, we have some examples of setting up in a Docker container, which has made it, I mean, pretty trivial. So Docker has a restriction that you can kind of just run. It kind of, not a restriction, you're kind of meant to run one process in Docker. And we had a suggestion from somebody in the Lightstream community to basically just, like most people have their application and then they have Lightstreams, they don't need a bunch of services. So Lightstream can actually run your application kind of as as a child process. So there's a pretty easy setup just to get your you know, in a Docker container, run Lightstream and that runs your application and it automatically handles the restores. So yeah, we've had, I don't know, I feel like a fair bit of success. You know, they usually get up and running without a lot of questions or a lot of back and forth about how things work or like, you know, which settings you need to set. Trying to make an active effort to not put every feature into it, you know, kind of know its strengths. We've had a myriad of different (laughs) suggestions for what we should put in there. But, you know, really trying to focus on, you know, this does backups well. We're trying to add replication and that's, you know, really the main focus of it you know there's other areas around people want to do uh, like change data capture where you can actually detect every single change from like a logical level that gets a lot more complicated people dream big dreams i think someone wanted on the blockchain at one point as well it's like no there's no blockchain <laughs> of <such> course <laughs> <laughs> like it's
2: for a web3 thing yeah Yep. yep.
1: <laughs>
3: so just trying to keep it trying to keep it simple and you know and really like it's the conceptually, you know, underneath, it's really not a complicated system. You know, it's pulling off these changes, which are just an append-only log, and we're uploading. And if it fails in the upload, it'll just keep retrying until it can reconnect. And it, it kind of tracks the position and moves it along. So it's, there's some really crazy CS stuff in the world out there, advanced topics, but they are not generally in Lightstream. We're trying to keep it pretty dead simple.
0: You've mentioned several times there, we... You're the lead developer on this, as I understand it. Like, is there
3: a team? You, you said this has been going for at least a year or two years. Who was all involved with this? Lightstream has a contribution policy, but it ended up actually on Hacker News and that I don't allow contributions, or at least I didn't orig- originally. We didn't take any contributions. Back when I did BoltDB, I got a lot of contributions from people that wanted to add very specific features, and they weren't bad features, but like... You know, the actual development of the feature was just kind of one small piece of it. And then there's a long-term, you know, managing it and debugging it and fielding questions about it that, you know, the original author just isn't around for it. So it's just, it kept being more work for me to add more features onto Bolt. And it kind of burned me out and I eventually archived that project. It got forked off by CoreOS later. The idea with Lightstream was, you know, I want to make this thing, I want to keep it narrow and focused. And I just want to be the only developer at first. That got a little bit onerous and that, you know, people would say, hey, can you fix this like spelling mistake or this tiny little bug? And they're like, just open an issue and then I have to fix it. And it's like, you know what? I can, I'm can. fine with people adding the little bug fixes and whatnot. So it's, it's relaxed the policy a little bit. But yes, I am the primary developer. I use the term we more because like an open source project, I feel like the code part is sort of easy, easy-ish. Like it's really like, there's a lot of ideas around how you can do stuff and like documentation and trying things out and giving feedback. And like all those different pieces, I feel like are we, there's a lot of people that have really contributed back in that way. I don't like owning the project personally, like just saying, Hey, this is just me. Look at me. So that's the idea.
2: We've talked about how SQLite is kind of like the database of choice for beginning a project like Rails. That's the default. Maybe one day it'll be the default for Phoenix as well, but it it decreases the complexity for, you know, deploying. You don't have to worry about Postgres and networking, all that kind of stuff. It is totally a separate system. Where is this? It's just a file. (laughs) We're bringing it back to the everyday developer. Have you thought about Lightstream for Excel?
3: (laughs) You know, I actually have. I really love Excel, honestly. Like I use Excel or like Google Sheets all the time. I'm actually like managing like volunteers for my kids' swim team and like, the system that we have to use, I just cannot ever get the information I need out of it. So I, like, export everything out to an Excel spreadsheet and, like, manage it in there. But, yeah, honestly, like, I've actually I've thought about that before. Like, if you could have like, a globally distributed Excel spreadsheet <laughs> someday.
2: It's just XML, right? We could stream and replicate XML. Sure, sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs>
3: Although I think Google Sheets kind of fixes that.
2: Oh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. So, so, so there, now you got multi-cloud support. You could have multi...
3: No, I'm just kidding. I mean, the the irony <laughs> of like, you know, so SQLite is really, you know, it's a file on disk. But like, the irony is it actually can be, I think, long term. I think there's really a lot of options for distributing out. Like, if someone needs security around their application, they might want a database per user. And if you do a database per user in Postgres, you're going to have a hard time. Probably, so you know the idea that it's just a file, you know, is a really interesting concept. So like, you know, one of the design goals we have for some of the this upcoming stuff is to be able to support you know a million SQLite files uh, for an end user, and that they can just generate them. You know, unless you're like Netflix or something, and you have a bajillion users, that might be more of an issue. But you know, we we want to make a lot of these you know, like sharding problems and distributing the data problems like a lot of those a lot simpler. And having a, a lower-level primitive of a database like SQLite works a lot better than having this very large, kind of bulky primitive of something like Postgres. So it's a weird, it's kind of interesting.
2: No, that's that's. I'm glad you mentioned that because I hadn't thought about yeah some of those other complexity issues. Uh, yeah, like multi-tenancy or or any other way you want to just chop up the the database for you know access. Yeah, that's that's interesting to think about.
3: Oh, yeah, you can do like consistent hashing with your, if you have a bunch of nodes and you want to spread them out. I mean, that's one way to do it. You know, obviously, the sky's the limit.
2: Yeah, I was just writing a, a chapter of uh, of a book. Yeah, the hashing is a strategy for sharding. And I'm going to have to noodle on this for for a while. This is pretty cool.
0: I think, Ben, it's been really fun because you've given us a lot of, to think about. And it's stuff that I know I'm going to keep thinking about just the idea of you mentioned tenancy and having user separated data and it's like, oh wow, you know because there are, in the Linux space there's some read-only system config and then you have just user customized stuff. And it's like I can imagine a system where I might have two SQL light databases where one is all of the system data that's about the service or whatever, and then there's a little separate one that is writable that is the user's customized storage and personalization of it. And it just, it really brings up a lot of different options that maybe we were never considering before. So I think it's very cool.
3: Yeah, I think there's, there's some fun stuff. Uh, Segment, actually, they, they built a whole distributed system for some of their configuration information where they could send it out to the different nodes. And it was all based on SQLite as well. So yeah, I, honestly, I feel like there's kind of a resurgence of SQLite. Like SQLite was good for embedded way back. And just as computers have improved and we've gotten so much faster, like we've kind of gotten to the point where, you know, eking out an extra 10% performance with something like Postgres might not even be the most important thing that we need to do when we can actually, you know, have something that's closer, lower latency, you know, different, you know, all kinds of different trade-offs. And they just change over time as our underlying hardware changes. So I think it's a, it's a nice time to kind of jump back into SQLite and see, you know, just see what all we can do. I think there's still a lot of potential.
2: That meshes really well with like some core tenets of like how Erlang and Elixir you know, were started maintain like their mission for, you know, a, a stable and uh, fault tolerant kind of platform, you know, not centralized so much. I won't give the whole talk, but, you know, Jose Valim has given this before. Sasha Yurix has given this before. You know, Joe Armstrong has given this before. The race isn't to bigger and better machines. It's to smaller and more distributed machines. And so I think that meshes really well with how Elixir developers typically, you know, uh, think about their their problem space, and then one more thing to add to that is, uh, there's an interesting like pillar of Elixir development uh, called Nerves, and Nerves is about embedded development, and so they've brought a lot of features, like in, or started and introduced kind of a lot of features that are now kind of part of Elixir, like building releases for those those targets on like Raspberry Pis, for example. And I think they they start with uh, SQLite 3 because that's that just makes the most sense. Then why well, have Postgres on a po- po- Raspberry Pi? I feel like there's a lot of compliments here. And so I'm I'm excited to see where this
3: goes.
0: Well, Ben, this has been really fun. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and help us understand more about how SQLite, it's time to re-examine and just kind of be aware that, hey, this is still here. It's actually gotten faster. Hardware's gotten better. This can actually perhaps do more than you thought it could. And just being able to share Lightstream, the project you've been working on, and how that adds features, durability, replication, and a whole lot of other possibilities for the systems that we are designing. That when we're trying to solve a problem for a customer or a business, it gives us something else to reach for in our toolbox that might just actually be the right tool for the job. So thank you very much, Ben. I appreciate it.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me on. I always love uh, kind of learning about what different communities are doing. And just, yeah, I think there's a lot of potential out there for sure.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.